What's up, y'all? This is Ramel Watley, and welcome to Truck and Hustle, the podcast for trucking entrepreneurs. If you want to learn about the trucking industry from the business side of things, you're in the right place. Every week, I interview the people who are making it happen on a daily basis. I get them to share their successes, their failures, and sometimes even their secrets. The goal is to show you how you too can create financial freedom in the booming trucking industry. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. For those that are out here, if they want to, you know, think about building value, just just try not to think of acquisitions. Don't make it something bigger than what, what it really is. Um, I think that it just takes one. Once you do your first one, um, it can unlock just an, an incredible amount of possibilities to transform wealth for your family and your community. I'm Spencer Tenney, CEO of The Tenney Group. You're now listening to The Truck and Hustle. Turn my mic up. Take there. Yeah, yeah, uh. On the road to the riches. Life takes a toll like bridges. Good friends become foes and snitches. Better watch who knows in your business. All right, Hustle Fam, Hustle Fam. We are back with another amazing episode. And today, I have a very, very special guest with me, uh, my friend uh, and also fellow podcaster, uh, entrepreneur, and the CEO of the Tenny Group, uh, mergers and acquisitions firm responsible for millions of dollars of mergers and acquisitions <laughs> and advisor as well, Mr. Spencer Tenny. Hello, Spencer. Hey, good to be with you. Man, welcome to Truck and Hustle, man. We, fi- we finally got you here. It's been a long time coming, and I'm very excited. For sure. So I've, I've been on Spencer's <laughs> podcast, but I said, Spencer, you got to talk to my audience about M&A, right? We got to talk about the things that's going on in the M&A world. And I just, you know, would love for you to just educate the audience on, you know, just everything mergers and acquisitions, which is what you guys do. So I'm really excited to have this conversation. But first, before we get into the meat of it, we have to just kind of understand your backstory a little bit. So just tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, just kind of how you kind of came up. So talk about it. Where are you, where are you from? Yeah. So originally from Arlington, Texas. And, yeah. um, you know, I'm, I'm a third generation transportation guy. My, my grandfather drove a beer truck and a taxi uh, for 60 years between the two. And, um, you know, my dad swore he would never get involved in transportation. But but you know what happens when you say things like that. <laughs> That's right. Um and, you know, my background, um, you know, I, I went to school at University of Texas. I did a variety of different things, was in the music business for a little bit, did a little healthcare, And, you know, growing up, I always saw my dad helping business owners through that greatest financial event of their entire lifetime. And, I, you know, I got to watch that growing up. And even as I went to do other things and explore other, you know, things I was interested in, I could never shake this just amazing privilege to be a part of that transaction. And so um, ultimately found my way back to the business around 20 years ago. Um, We became partners and did a lot of great things for business owners together and then ultimately bought him out about five years ago. And it's just, it's just been an amazing ride and privilege to come alongside business owners who in many cases, a credit card, one truck and a prayer, and then (laughs) built something, you know, amazing. Right. And then, you know, and, and I think what, you know, the kind of the, our whole reason for being is that when you're trying to transfer ownership in this industry, it's not like other industries. Yeah. And so, um, you know, we just developed the process so that we could help people navigate through that one thing that they don't really have much experience with and help them exit on their terms, select who's going to be the next trustee of their business and start the next great adventure. 
It's, it's pretty awesome. Got it. Now, it sounds amazing. So you guys have been doing this since the 70s, correct? 1973 is when my dad started advising companies. Okay, got it. Are you able to tell us some like maybe notable uh, uh, transactions that you guys were involved in or advised on? Yeah, so, so um, some that are top of mind just over the last year, the uh, Ashley Furniture's uh, acquisition of the Western Division of uh, Wilson Logistics, which, you know, there was about 500 trucks associated with that uh, transaction. Really interesting just in terms of that private carrier coming into the for hire space to expand capacity when everything was going nuts. Yeah. Um, here recently, we also did the Burger Logistics, which was uh, co-owned with Red Bull, the energy drink. Okay. Um, so they acquired a refrigerated trucking deal called Super T Transport. And um, so that was a really neat deal in terms of international buyer try and expand, again, capabilities in the supply chain in North America. So that was just a really interesting deal that we got to be a part of. And then also um, here at Keenan Advantage, one of the most prolific acquirers uh, in North America, uh, we were able to transact with them with a company called American Petrolog, which was their first foray into uh, the brokerage side of things. And so they needed a, a proven expert. And so uh, we represented the seller in that transaction. And you know, just a phenomenal deal that that uh, that they're part of, but those are three that are pretty recent that we were a part of that just have a little flavor, mm. di different uh, characteristics, but yeah. it's been exciting. For sure. So you guys would represent the seller and the buyer, right? Both sides? Most of the time we represent the seller. Okay. Uh, probably 95 plus percent. Okay. And, 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 uh, and what type of situation would you represent the buyer? Um, very select uh, situation. Sometimes what might happen is, is that they have a, a very aggressive acquisition strategy and they don't have the uh, resources or bandwidth to go execute what okay. they want to on time. So they might bring us in to kind of help add firepower to, to what they're trying to do. Other things that we might do for buy side, sometimes we'll review offers just okay. to, to say, hey, like, um, you know, I want to buy this deal, but I think, you know, I'm not really sure what I'm doing. I know I should buy this business, but I'm not really sure how to get it done. So we might come in in an isolated um, role in that situation. Got it. So would you guys be, for lack of a better word, like a broker? Yeah, I think that's, I mean. For people to understand. Yeah, it. I think that's, that, that's, um, that's the language, you know, most people associate it with. I think that the challenge for this industry is when you think about broker, you typically kind of think about that main street broker. For sure, yeah. that They're selling tanning salons and whatever. <laughs> yeah. And they're, 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 their capabilities are pretty limited, specifically when it comes to understanding the nuances of this very complex and uh, ever-changing industry we call transportation logistics. And yeah. so um, and so I think that's where we kind of come in and, and fill that void. There's a, a, a need for more sophistication, more experience to deal with the nuance uh, and, and to be able to troubleshoot. I mean, like I said, we represent the sellers in most cases, but half the time the buyers are relying on us to say, hey, figure it out. How, do, how can we do this? <laughs> right, right, right. And, and so ultimately, uh, we can't get deals done unless we are addressing both of the interest or the interest mm. of both parties. Um, we just got to do it in such a way that, you know, everybody feels good about it. Got it. Could you, could you talk a little bit more about how you guys exactly add value to the deal, right? Because... I'm sure there are certain instances mm -hmm. where maybe people wouldn't use your firm, like they do yeah. it directly themselves. How do you guys add value to, the, to that deal? No, I, I, that's a great question. Matter of fact, we, we um, um, recently released a white paper called Why Hire an M&A Advisor. Okay. And, and because the most common deal is, is like, hey, I'm a, I'm a superior negotiator. I've got a, <laughs> you know, an amazing network of buyers, already have relationships. Why would I need somebody like right. that? 
And um, as part of that, I tell this story where it's a really good industry friend and it's been five years um, since I met him and he had just sold his business. And, 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 and over that, since that time, he's seen like five of his really good friends that have sold their business as well, but they used M&A advisors. Mm. And so what's happened is um, his initial was like, he felt really good about what he accomplished in that. As he has since learned more about the M&A process, learned more about what was actually negotiable that he didn't understand at the time, um, that decision to kind of go it alone has not aged well. Right. right. Because he's kind of gotten a little bit, so he's like, man, so he comes up and tells me, I should totally use you back then. <laughs> like, but I think the main things are these. Um, number one, it's, um, some of it's just like, we can do things just because we're not you. Number one, protecting confidentiality. Yes. Yeah, you know, like the one, number one thing is do no harm. Like if you start um, creating suspicions about your intention to sell or possibly sell, like you may like, you may just want to learn. But if that information gets, um, known by people who don't need to know that, that can be very disruptive to your business. Right. So, so step one, I think the whole role um, of an M&A advisor in the most basic terms is do no harm. Make sure that you can explore and learn about this process without doing harm to your current operation. Got it. So the other part of it is understanding how to package the business. You may, um, you may, have, you may know how to create a very profitable business, but the typical business owner doesn't know how to package that business to the right buyer in a way where they appreciate the, the investment highlights and do it in a way where they start, you know, writing offers that back that up. Okay. So, so I think that that's, you know, that's, that's a huge deal. And then connecting with the right buyers, understanding how to navigate all the things related to private equity, depending if that's going to be a buyer, um, deal structures, all kinds of complicated things related to um, getting the right deal, protecting the interest, and then managing the, the whole due diligence. The typical business owner dramatically uh, overestimates their ability to self-manage this process. We're talking about hundreds of unique data requests within one data room, mm. and to try to not get lost or frustrated or or just lose your mind because <laughs> you're still running your business, right? right like right. so, so I think that. You know, they think I've got a buyer. They think I can negotiate, negotiate the deal, but the deal is, can you get it? Can you get paid? Because right. none of it matters unless you actually get paid. For sure. And so I think that that's what, when people start doing more um, leaning in and educating themselves about the process, they realize that um, not just any group, just a, a true um, deal practitioner is worth its weight in gold. Got it. What are the key things that go into analyzing a deal? Well, I mean, there's several things in terms of how a deal might be valued. You know, they're going to look at uh, the volume, just pure revenue. They're going to look at EBITDA, that's earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. That's uh, an expression of, of, of how the cash flow can service debt, but that's just part of how somebody might, you know, come up with a value calculation. But they're going to look at customer concentration. They're going to look at the management team is—is is this a business or is this inheriting somebody's job? Mm. I mean, if there's no, if there's no depth within that team, then it's, it's number one either they won't be interested or they'll heavily discount an offer on that business. Got it. Um, and but the other part of it is just you know, um, you know, understanding you know where you're strong, what lanes are strong, where you're not. You know, what are the other opportunities in terms of growth? Is it on a trajectory that someone who's investing sees like, wow, this is really going somewhere. So I think those are all the things when somebody, you have an educated buyer, they're looking at this, they're looking at the quality of the equipment, 
But mainly they're looking at, how do I get a return on this? Where is it going? What's the story? Right. And so if they're saying, you know, this thing's growing at 12% year over year, I can get in there, I can acquire this thing, and I can create all these synergies through my existing business. You know, those are the things that they're trying to quickly assess whether or not it's a fit. And then if it's not, they'll quickly move on to something else. And so back to the packaging that I was telling you about, that's why it's key to understand how an investor looks at the business so that you can package the business to address those questions and make sure that you get on the dance floor. Got it. What are the uh, typical multiples after you look at EBITDA, like for a, a typical tr uh, transportation company deal? Yeah, I mean, I th that's going to be all over the place. Okay. I mean, I mean I'm, my understanding in terms of this audience, um, it could be one truck to, to several hundred trucks. Yep. And, and, de and depending on the, the size really does matter in, the, in this case, because in a asset heavy industry, um, that uh, that always has this capex component to it. Um, you know, it's going to be you, you have to have a certain amount of volume in order to 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 attract an interest at all. Okay. So I think that that's part of it. Um, if you're an asset light company, you will attract a very different range of multiples than an asset heavy. I mean, typical companies like in any environment, um, I would say if, if you're looking through a, a decade of values over that, most for truckload carriers they're probably going to be somewhere between between three and five times EBITDA. Okay. Um, and, and somebody, you know, sometimes they might look at that. Buyers may not use EBITDA. They might want to use just free cash flow, which is, you know, EBITDA, um, uh, you know, less CapEx as mm. far as what that requirement is. You know, some people might just do valuations on equipment plus drivers. There's, mm. a, there's a host of different ways that people will value the business just depending on, you know, how they think about it. So I think that the key for, you know, people that are in this industry, the more they understand about how potential investors are going to value their business, it's really helpful as they think about building value. Like, yeah. you know, like this is what's going to matter. Well, then this is where I need to focus my attention. Mm, got it. What has changed the most in, in your space? Because you've been doing this for how long now? Well, me personally, a little you, over 20 years. Oh, 20 years. Yeah. What has changed the most in the M&A space that this kind of stands out to you that's you know, 20 years ago, it was this way. And now today, it, this is what's going on. That's, that's totally different. No, well, I, I think the biggest change um, is just how normalized acquisitions have become. I think 20 years ago, you, you might have thought it was reserved for only the big guys. They're the only ones that integrate that level of sophistication into their growth strategy. When today, you know, you, the, the, the cost of doing business continues to rise. And really, there's no way to offset that through organic growth. And so that's why we've seen, you know, a great example is, is, is Warner Enterprises, 60-year-old company, never done an acquisition until 18 months ago. They've done three over the last 18 <laughs> months. And the deal is part of that's leadership. But part of that is just the recognition that if you want to compete in the future, you gotta, you got to start adapting your growth strategy and how you're going to go attack the market. Because mm. unless you're growing and capturing synergies in the same swoop, it's very difficult to keep pace with other folks that are doing that as yeah. part of their strategy. Yeah. Are, are, and I know you're an M&A guy, but just in like totality, are mergers good for like the smaller companies when these companies start kind of consolidating and you know, they're just eating up everything. Like how does that impact smaller carriers or does it at all? I think it, well, I, I think that it can be, it, it has to do with the, the 
the customers. Like, okay. What are they actually buying? I mean, they, they probably don't have any issues with getting equipment. Maybe they do. So it just depends on what is the pain point that they're trying to solve for. If they're saying, I just want revenue, well, you want to make sure that that is sticky revenue that you're actually acquiring. If it's something that is, there's no history, there's no relationship there, then you know maybe that that's probably not going to be the type of risk that you want to assume as a business owner. So maybe you want to try to double down on organic growth. But I think that what I would want your listeners to to understand is that, you know, this is a skill that once people start practicing it, the they become very good at it. it, it and it's like it's some people have an idea that like this is something that's really sophisticated, and it doesn't have to be. <laughs> right. I think the issue is it's like it's it's, it's number one. It's just your uh, are you uh, targeting the right types of acquisitions, and you know are you and obviously are you paying something that that's going to allow you to be successful long term. Yeah. You know, just like anything else, it's just. You make money on when you, when you buy it. It's it's if you overpay, you know, that's the risk. If just getting yourself in a cycle that you can't get out of. For sure, for sure. So so, but I think the reality is is that I've had guys that, um, um, you know, they've done very small deal, and you know, uh, almost you know unthinkable that you that you that if you knew who they were, like you're like you're serious? They did deal that small lot, <laughs> and like. <laughs> And then like, and then they just start stacking on top of that. And I think that's, that's what the deal is. It's like a lot of first time acquirers start with something small and they, and it kind of, it, it takes the mystery out of it. Like this is, that wasn't that hard. Mm. And, and then once they get some confidence, um, it's amazing to me is how much larger that target acquisition profile almost immediately becomes because like I said, they, they, they get more confidence in themselves and, and their ability to execute. Yeah. So, so basically, if I'm hearing you right, a lot of the smaller carriers have opportunities out there to be acquired that they may not even think exist. I think that's, I think that's true. Um, I think the current market, I would say this, when the equipment values went like crazy mm -hmm. um, for a while, I think there was a really unique opportunity for small, for small operators to get acquired because there was a shortage on equipment. Yeah. And so, so that made... Um, that particular profile, you know, more attractive than they ordinarily would be. Uh, I still think that there's opportunities to get deals done with with smaller operators, just a very small pool of buyers who's going to be interested in doing it. Got it. Got it. How how would how would someone find those type of buyers if they were interested in selling? I mean, most of the time where you see those transactions take place, you know, people don't just wake up and say, I think I'm going to buy a trucking company today. <laughs> right. Like have no, no associate. I mean, they're going to be someone who's already probably in the space. Got it. And so I think it, a lot of these smaller deals that take place, there are, Hey, you know, I, I, you know, I remember you saying that you're having a hard time. I love, I love your business. What do you think about doing a deal? Got and, it. And figuring something out. I think that's how a lot of deals organically get done. They're kind of, you know, really small. Um, it's, it's more about, Hey, Probably doesn't make sense for both of us to slug it out. Let's figure out how we can <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. help help one another and and face the future in a little bit more constructive way. So I think that's part of it. And and then um, you know you got to start somewhere. I think that that's start that's the start. And then from there, I think people start getting a little bit more imagination about what they can do because all it takes is to experience some level of new create a newly created cash flow or synergies from that deal like wow what if i did that like times 100 right i mean we had a guy um 
probably like 10 years ago and <clears throat> he'd been in space for 20 years, did his first acquisition and it put him on a path. He did about five more deals over the following five years. And he was like, you know, and we have a quote from him. He said, you know, I was in the industry for 20 years, never really made money until my first acquisition changed, wow. it, changed everything. Wow. And, and I think there's a lot of folks that identify with that. They love the industry. It's an amazing industry. It's pretty brutal at times, pretty unforgiving. For and sure. so, to the degree that you can reimagine how you think about growth, it can get pretty good. Got it, got it. When is it time for a business owner to sell, in, in your opinion? When is a, a, a good time or, uh, yeah, when is, when is a good time to sell for, for a business owner? I, I think it really just depends. I mean, we do, we've done deals uh, since 1973 in every economic cycle, every, depression, recession, whatever there, I mean, there's, there's always activity there's yeah. there, there, because, um, in many cases when there's a problem, um, because of the environment an acquisition is the solve for that problem. Right. And, and so in, in some cases, the only solve for that problem. So like, <laughs> so I, I think the opportunities are always there and the reasons are always there, but, but in terms of the timing, that's, that's entirely up to the owner. I think I had, I had a conversation um, just yesterday with a business owner. They do about $20 million in EBITDA and um, maybe $100 million total in top line revenue. And he's like, well, I, just, I don't see how this makes sense for me. And I said, I don't either in terms of like <laughs> why, why you would want to sell. And I said, you know, for someone who's experiencing what you're experiencing, the only reason that they would probably go forward with a sale is one of two things. One, um, they have another investment opportunity that they're really excited about that has less risk, that has more upside that they want to redeploy capital to, uh, as opposed to continuing to double down on, you know, maybe something that's got nuclear verdicts and, you know, mm. all these types of, you know, trends, you know, like, uh, it just doesn't look like it's going to be appreciated as, as an asset. Right. And so that's one. Uh, the other is, Sometimes folks just like, hey, um, maybe it's a faith thing, maybe it's a ministry thing. They just they have a calling that they or a need that they want to address that's time sensitive. Where um, I remember we had a, um, a friend of ours out of Houston, Edis Hobson, and um, he had a, a something that was going on in his church, and he knew that he could affect that through the sale of his business. Got and it. so he kind of, although he if he would probably hang in there for maybe 12 or 18 months, he probably would have had a better outcome, but he just felt compelled that like, no, this is what I feel like I'm called to do right now. Yeah. And so um, I think those are the things that really, um, you know, ultimately drive the reasons. Sometimes health too. Yeah. You know, health can be an issue. It's super stressful as part of being in this space. So sometimes people just say like, if I'm, I gotta take care of myself, otherwise I ain't gonna be around. For sure. Um, so th those are kind of the big ones. Um, honestly, if it was just about money, I mean, my job be easy, right? Like, <laughs> like, like right. I can make a financial case right. really well. Right. But you know, that's not what this industry is about. Just business owner, you know, people don't get in this industry so like, hey, I want to be rich necessarily. They want to serve their communities. They want to build something. They want to. So it's not that simple. This is a hey, if, when when the money's right, I'll exit. Yeah. I've almost found that that's never true. Like there there has to be a combination of several things. I think the people that exit on their terms and have the most influence over that are the people that are the most educated that are constantly asking the right questions about got it. When, when should I be doing this and how should I be creating value up until that time. Got it. What, what are some conflicts that happen during a deal that maybe people may not 
really know about because I'm sure it's never it's not always smooth, right? Yeah. What 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 kind of give give us an idea what happens when you know a, a deal is going down and kind of like the behind the scenes. What are some conflicts that you may see? Uh, I mean, some are like material, like you know you you know major performance step. You'll be in the middle of due diligence. You're you know two months away from closing, and then you get the next turn of financials and like, oh my gosh, we've got a 15% dip here. And so right. now we're like, well, is it worth what we thought it was worth? And then everybody's questioning. Um, I mean, that's a big one. Uh, and then there's there's <laughs> there's other things that you would never expect. I mean, what, probably my, this is probably my first deal that I did solo probably 20 years ago. Okay. I was, uh, it, 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 was it was effectively done. This is a deal out in Florida and they had the buyer and the seller together and they had their spouses with them and they were just kind of, doing a, like a meet and greet. We're going to close in a couple of weeks. And the buyer's wife got extremely intoxicated and belligerent at this dinner. And my, <laughs> okay. cli my client was like a, a really godly, uh, faithful man. And it was just like, he just felt weird about it. Right, like, right. It wasn't it was a like, fit anymore it was, all yeah, of a sudden. It was like, what is going on here? <laughs> these, and, uh, these are the people going to have my baby? No, no way. Like, the, uh, and, and ultimately, like, uh, the deal, you know, he got, got over it. But... Um, you know, people underestimate how fragile the deal process is. Like certain like little things like that can just trigger somebody like, no, like you said, not my baby. That ain't, right. that, that ain't happening. And, right. and to be fair, I think that the typical business owner only needs like one thing to kind of self-sabotage yeah. and exit just because it's a really hard thing to let go of. So, you know, there, there's all kinds of things. I mean, the financial dips, uh, we had a deal under contract two weeks away from close and, um, and um, President Biden, you know, produced this. Um, I'm, I'm sure many of your um, audience know about whatever he proposed as far as independent contractors, some type of yep. uh, legislation around that. Yeah. We had a capital sponsor. This is a deal. I mean, the purchase price is well over $100 million. Got spooked. They're out. <laughs> Two weeks from closing because oh, wow. of, because of a proposed regulation. It wasn't even law. Right, right, um, right. And so that, that's how fragile stuff is. And so I think that like... Um, you know, we're still getting that deal done. We had to pivot to another buyer, but like, um, you know, I, I think that that's what, you know, that's what's, that's what's involved. I mean, I think that what we're trying to do is to insulate both the buyer and the seller once we kind of get to a certain point, that there's all kinds of landmines all around that can get a deal done. So we're trying to, you know, um, make sure that we're clear in communication. We're managing the, the data room, um, when there are issues, we're providing SALs, whether it be for an insurance. Sometimes it's like, hey, this is a this is an issue. How are we going to insure this? Whether through, you know, representations and warranties insurance. There's all kinds of like post transaction risks that we're trying to account for. Uh, it just gets pretty um, intense and uh, sometimes overwhelming. So that's what our job is. We 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 help bring that sophistication and knowledge. Um, to, like I said. Though our client is the uh, the seller in most cases, the buyer heavily relies on us to make sure that the deal's insulated as well. Yeah, are there are there any type of deals that you prefer over others? Like when you see this come across your desk, you're like, yeah, this is gonna be a home run. Like I know this is gonna work out. Like what do those kind of deals look like for you? Um, well, um, no, that's a, that's a great question. <laughs> it, really, it really is. There, there definitely are moments where dollar bills start like coming up like, yep, that's going to work. That's going to work. That's you gonna see it and you know it's that, a good that, one, right? That's going to have an audience. No, I, I think that um, the, the clearest ones are when someone has, um, you know, a substantive amount of revenue to begin with. 
and then a differentiating amount of earnings as a percent of that revenue, like even as a percent of sales and a very specific niche expertise, because that is very difficult to replicate. Mm. So if we've got, we've got expertise, expertise and we've got volume, you know, I, I, cause, cause then I'm looking at that. I'm saying, Oh, I can sell that to, uh, you know, a, a large strategic, I can sell that to private equity. I can sell that to private equity that doesn't even have a presence in, transportation at all right so i think like that's what i'm looking for what like in terms of sellability like who like what kind of market can it command and so when you start talking about you know pure performance niche expertise that can't easily be replicated those are the types of companies that attract buyers and ultimately dollars and that's what i like for sure. We, we were talking about niche off camera a little yeah. bit. Can you talk about some of the niches that you've kind of worked in that people would kind of be surprised that these niches even exist, number one, yeah. and that, you know, can be pretty lucrative? Yeah. So, I mean, I mentioned the, the, the deal with American Petrolog and Keenan Advantage. And I think like they were a brokerage company that had very specific expertise in this, you know, fuel, chemical, um, transloading world. And so it was very specific. And, and so like in that particular arena, like nobody could touch them. And right. so that's why not just Keenan, but there were many buyers that this immediately appreciated what, what it was. Yeah. And I think that like, um, so in that situation, like our job is, you know, we go out and we get, you know, eight to 10 offers and lay them side by side with our clients so that they can over the course of 60 days say, okay, I know what I'm worth because here's the evidence. Right. You know, like, <laughs> right, right, right. You know, and so whether because if it's just like one offer, it can be very challenging to do that. So I, I think that's, um, you know, on, you know, and if you're not differentiating as a business, I think, I think that's the question you might want to be asking yourself in terms of like, how am I really going to command and attract that type of value? Because if you're being valued as a, a commodity, you know, like, then it's very difficult to, um, build value uh, unless you're doing and it, it, like the only way to build value in that scenario is pure volume. you got to have a ton of right. volume in right. order to, to be attractive as a, as a target. Whereas if you're niche, you don't have to be as big to, to, to command a certain amount of audience. That makes sense. How, how do you guys find buyers? Do you guys have like a back, like a pipeline of just buyers just looking or when you find the business, you say, mm -hmm. we're going to look for these particular buyers because we think it will be a good fit. How does that work? Yeah, that's a good question. So with, um, I mean, there's tons of research tools and in, in, in terms of things that we have access to, but, the, but I think the main thing that we're trying to do to be different, uh, as a firm is that we in a given year, um, or just in, in a given assignment to sell a particular company, we might go to 40 different transportation events, uh, or private equity type events. And so we're, we're going directly to these relationships in, in developing these folks um, and getting way upstream as far as what do they actually, what are they looking for? Like, what are they doing? So, so rather than us trying to get the mandate uh, to sell somebody's company and then figure out, okay, who's going to buy this? Like for us, it works a little bit in reverse where we're trying to find out like, where's the market, right? right. And then, um, you know, just as a, as a company, we want to make sure, we want to try to proactively go develop relationships with folks that we think have an alignment with the people that are going to do most of the acquiring. Right. And so, um, but as far as we understand, I mean, we're not aware of anybody that does that type of specific industry market outreach to go develop those relationships. Because I think that 
what we're trying to do is we don't want to just know who a buyer is. We understand what are you trying to accomplish? Because even sophisticated buyers um, don't immediately connect how a particular acquisition could help them. So what we're trying to understand is like, what are you trying to solve for within your business? Where are you taking it from a, from a strategy standpoint? And so like, well, we have this pain right here. Like we're trying to get more lane density right here. We're trying to expand. Um, we want a specific expertise in logistics or in brokerage because we don't have that. We had one publicly traded company come to us and say, hey, um, here's what we've learned. Uh, we've been in the reefer business for 15 years and we're awful at it. So, so, so we want to acquire a true platform refrigerated trucking company because we're done trying to figure it out ourselves. We have to, you know, so like, so if we, if we would have just been saying or trying to like assume that just because they had an existing platform, they wouldn't want what we had to offer. Like we would have never gone to them with that deal, but it's because we're asking the types of questions that open up more strategic type, um, uh, more strategic lens into what they're trying to accomplish, then that's what's helping us kind of refine their target profile and bring the right deals. Got it. What's the what's the worst deal that you've ever seen out there? That worst? You, that you could speak of, that you saw and you're like, they shouldn't have done that. Or that didn't make fiscal sense. Or after it was done, you're like, you know what? That was just a bad deal. Could, could you speak on something like I that? I don't know. I'm getting, tr I'm getting <laughs> trouble. Like, I don't want to get you in I'm trouble. I'm going to hurt somebody. I don't, don't want to get you in trouble or hurt your yeah. feelings. Or maybe you could say it without saying any names. Like, no, I, what I, happened after the deal that made it a bad deal without saying the company's I, name? I, I will say this. I think the thing that I hear the most, like, um, I think where you hear something that goes materially wrong is that both buyer and seller um, – just dramatically underestimate how incompatible their cultures are to come together. Mm. And, and so it could be because their drivers are compensated differently. And you try to blend these two companies into one and it's, you know, it's a dead man walking. That ain't, right. ain't going to happen. Right. And so like, I think that the, 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 the ones that become the most explosive and the most damaging to the buyer is because they bought something that on paper was great but was completely incompatible from a culture standpoint. Yeah. That's what gets explosive. I mean, you can fix a lot of things, even if you overpay, but if, but if, but if you strike out on culture compatibility, I mean, that's going to be the most, you're not going to want to make that mistake ever. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. What do you, what do you think about the, the, the latest, uh, night swift, uh, uh, deal. What, 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 any any thoughts on that? Was that was yeah. that a surprise to you? Was no, that interesting to you? Do you see that coming? Because they recently just purchased Night not too long ago, right? A couple of years ago. Yeah, it was a couple, couple of years ago. And then now they do this. So what do you think about that? Well, I think that it was uh, inevitable. Somebody was going to scoop up that business. Mm -hmm. um, uh, US Express. Just, I mean, I just been struggling for for a while. Um, I, I think it's pretty exciting. I, mean, I think that if anybody is able to integrate that and to, to make that work, Night Swiss proven that they have the ability to do that. Um, so I, I think for me, you know, I think it's an exciting deal, something to keep, keep an eye on. I, I think it will be successful. I think that the, the greatest winners are the current shareholders of US Express. I think they'll, they'll the greatest, you know, like- <laughs> For they'll, sure, they'll, they got the money. That, that's right. So, uh, so I, I think that's great. But I also think it's, it's hey, I, I like it when these deals take place because I, I do think they kind of give license for folks to become a little bit more imaginative about how they're going to do some stuff. I mean, people will have, you know, varying 
um, opinions about was it over, you know, did they overpay? Ultimately, if they get what they want out of the deal, no one's going to say they overpay. That's right. Um, but that's going to depend on execution. And, you know, that group, Knight Swift, feels very confident in their ability to do that. And, and so I, I think the lesson, what I like about it is that um, a lot of acquirers can get hung up. Well, it's not worth that. I'm not going to pay that. It's not worth that. Um, what that doesn't matter. Like what it, what matters is like what value can I create from this? Who cares what I? That's right. Like what it, what I pay for it today. The issue is what can I create from it tomorrow? That's and, right. and and so to me, I, to me, I get excited when I see people approaching growth that way because I think there's a lot to be learned from that. And, and in some cases, some people will, um, you know, put their own version on that. For sure. And it just goes to show you that the industry is still alive, man. Yeah. When those kind of deals are happening and especially in when the market is bleak and everybody's like gloom and doom, it's like people are paying almost a billion dollars for a company. It can't be that bad. Well, <laughs> right? no, I mean, I mean, and, and, I, and honestly, I mean, I think there's there's headlines everywhere in terms of like, you know, um, opinions about where is the deal flow without question. It's a different market than it was the last for sure. 18 months, but deals are still getting done. And you know why? Because the problems aren't going away. Um, so that's right. And then so <laughs> it's not so, going to change. They still got to keep no, on, keep on going. They got to figure out how to, you know, they, they got to figure out how to deal with, you know, rising expenses. They got to figure out how to create value. They got to figure out how to do a lot of things. And so even and so like, well, like at the end of the day, if interest rates, you know, you know, five or 500 basis points, I mean, all right, guys, Truck and Hustle has now partnered with Transpo CFO, powered by Venning. Transpo CFO offers a streamlined monthly subscription for businesses to consolidate their accounting, payroll, and tax needs into one flat monthly rate, saving businesses a tremendous amount of time and money while making their financial operations much smoother for the long road ahead. Check out Transpo CFO in the description below and tell them Truck and Hustle sent you. Now, let's get back to the show. If you're talking about it contextually, like I'll talk to like truckers that are like 65 years old, and they're like, "This is nothing." Like when I got into trucking, it was you right, know like right. something ridiculous, right. and and so like, everybody looks at it a little bit differently. But I think what we're seeing from our vantage point is that there's still a ton of acquiring going on, and our position is is because the cost of not acquiring is materially higher than just the increase in interest rates and and you know some of the setbacks just in terms of access to capital. So right. like, you still got to move, you still got to be proactive if you want to just protect the value that you've already created. Got it. What would you say is the toughest thing about your job and, and what you do? Um, you know, I think that we, we say this all the time, if it was just about money, be easy. But I think that what we're, we're trying to thread this needle that we have to get both parties um, and a lot of egos in some cases excited about a deal where they both feel good about it. And, and that can be a challenge uh, because there's, there's, it's human nature to resist change. And so um, you know, some owners will um, really struggle with that. Some don't struggle at all, to be honest. But I think the issue is, is knowing that we have to um, provide an experience to a seller who feels like whatever they've created, that they have peace of mind yeah. about letting go and saying, you're the right trustee and I trust you to go take it to the next level. And that's not easy. I mean, 
like I said, the economics, that's one thing, but to get the trust there with all the parties, and it's not just, if it, and that's the other thing, if it was just the buyer and the seller that we had to get in alignment, that would be easy, but you forget about the CPAs, the attorneys, the insurance folks that have to sign up on this, you know, the, you know, the uh, quality of earnings analysis that has to get done for everybody to buy off, to sign off and make sure that they've covered their rear end right. uh, and, and, and so that they can give the thumbs up to, to, to the guys actually doing the deal. All those people have to be satisfied. So I, I think that for us, we're the quarterback and we got to make sure that we get to the goal line. Got you. Is seller's remorse a real thing? I think so. Um, I think that um, there's a book that I give to a lot of my clients, sometimes well before that they sell. It's called Halftime. And the, the tagline for that book is transitioning from success to significance. Mm. And it's the idea that like, hey, there's something even better on the other side of this if you will open your mind to it. Hmm. And so, um, you know, we like to plant that seed just to get that process of thinking about the possibilities because sometimes business owners are so deep in their business, they never have the opportunity or take the opportunity to think about how amazing that next chapter could be. I mean, everything that they've learned from this industry and then now be able to, you know, leverage that across you know, so many different things. I often say that, hey, if you can be successful in this industry, you can pretty much do anything. Like, yeah. and, and I believe that 100%. So I think that um, the remorse is combated with education and specifically like knowing that, hey, this is gonna happen. If it's an abrupt change, you're probably gonna struggle. So rather than walk right into that, start doing it gradually. Kind of have one foot in and one foot out and start kind of transitioning. What would it be? Some people, you know, they know that I'm not going to play golf. I'm not going to do that. So they start thinking about missionally or, 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 you know, from an impact standpoint, what am I going to do in this next season of life? And I think if they begin to start, you know, getting some vision, it really makes that transition, um, you know, it's just, just much more fulfilling and joyful. Yeah. Should every uh, business owner be building to sell, and 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 how and how do you do that? How do you build to sell? Well, I I, I don't think that the the one benefit of this industry is like there is no um, halfway in. I mean, you 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 you're, you're all in almost all the time, and you have to constantly be reinvesting in your fleet. And so I think that if you're not approaching it that way, then you know, this is like I mentioned earlier, this extremely unforgiving industry. Like there is no kind of like tiptoeing around. Like you have to be all in doing it. Otherwise this industry will eat you up. Yeah. So I think that that's a good thing because that requires people to think about their businesses and to continue to, to build them. But, um, you know, I, I, I did a podcast um, maybe a week or two ago and we were talking about this seller that got an offer and um, ignored it and because it was inconvenient. He was in the middle of his daughter's wedding, came back a couple months later, um, got a new offer because the buyer went and bought another company while that guy ignored oh, wow. him, <laughs> re reduced his offer by $7 million. Oh, geez. So, so it was a very expensive wedding. So, but the point is this, is like, if you can resolve yourself to that, like, Whenever that I sell my company, when I exit, it's never going to be convenient. And the reason why it's not going to be convenient is probably because I'm doing something right. I'm, 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 I've built something 
attractive and it's and it's it's attracting interest yeah and i'm fully engaged and that's why it makes it uncon inconvenient but for most people inconvenience or i would say this convenience is a luxury they cannot afford mm. uh, and, and and so i i think that if you're building value and you're open to the fact that to capitalize on the value that you have created you have to be open to exiting at a time that is not of your choosing because ultimately the guy who's got the money it's going to have the most influence on that. For sure. So I, I, if you do those two things, you, I mean, you're going to be well ahead of the pack. Yeah. For sure. Are there any particular I's that should be dotted or T's that should be crossed when you're ready to come to the table as a seller? Yeah, we do. We kind of do some boot camps around this as far as like the, the key things are when you're ready. <clears throat> I always encourage people like have a one page teaser. Like if you have a good business, why shouldn't you be accept, expecting unsolicited offers? Like be ready for the buyer to knock on your door. Because when you, when he knocks on the door and says, hey, what do you think about selling? It's like, hey, get in line. Here's my one pager. Tell me what you think. Like, wow, this guy's. He's sharp. He's ready. He's sharp. Yeah, He's yeah, ready. Yeah. Like, I mean, because you think about from a differentiation standpoint, like they knocked on 10 other doors. You're the only one that was ready for it. That's right. They just totally forgot about the other nine. So you do that. And the second thing is that you train yourself or your team, probably your team, depending on how big your team is, to pull the types of financial reports and operational reports that a interested buyer is going to ask for immediately in the speed talks, because what a buyer's looking at is execution risk. If it takes you a week to pull a simple document, they're going to say like, this is never going to happen. That's right. But if you pull it, but, but if you said, Hey, listen, I've got it the same day, everything that you opened, it was the same day. I had my team do it. You know, this is of course, after you've signed a non-disclosure agreement, but, but think about how well that presents. And I think that, People don't understand, like, you don't win, like it, like, it doesn't matter unless you get paid. Yeah. Like, so if you can't execute those two things, you may have a wonderful business, but if you're not ready for the opportunity, you may never sell. Yeah. Because you're just going to get chosen over by someone who was ready. Got it. That makes total sense. How does someone engage, engage you to, to work with you at Tenny Group? Yeah, I mean, it's pretty simple. I mean, I think anything that we've done over the last 50 years, just starts with a conversation. And so I think that what we talk about is just get with our team and just say, hey, man, what's on your mind? And what are you trying to do? And the more that we understand about the goals, I think back to, um, you know, just knowing like at any given time, and we may have 20 deals going on in this space. So we can pretty confidently say, hey, this is where we think the market's going to be. And we talk about if there's an alignment in goals, um, we can do one of two things. We can say like, hey, does that make sense for you? Is that, is that going to be compelling enough for you to exit? And if not, well, let's talk about what, you know, what has to change. And then I kind of walk people and our team walks people through the process. Like, all right, hey, if you're going to change something, the result, it's, you're going to have to do something in the area of time, energy, capital, and new risk. Mm. So when people tell me, I'm like, they're like, I know how to do all those things, but I'm not doing any of that. Like, <laughs> I'm not working harder. I'm not putting more money in it. Uh, you know, I, I'm not taking on any more risks. Right. And, I'm, you know, and so like, you know, to me, it, like part of like just a, to me, it's kind of like a ministry. Like, hey, let me just help you process this. Because if you tell me that this is not going to work and all the costs in the industry are going up and you've already told me that you're not doing anything to affect then you're effectively you know, you're, you're driving your own value down. Yeah. And so I, I think that what ends up happening is that, you know, 
business owners will tell us all the time, like, no one talks to me like you talk to me. Like, <laughs> it's like, and that's the, you know, that's the nature of being a business owner when you're the boss. Yeah. No one, um, yes, men. Well, I'm just saying, I was like, <laughs> um, uh, one of my clients and he was very frustrated and we had, we had a tough talk and, and I said, Hey, listen, who in your life's actually talking to you? Like I'm talking to you. He's like, no one. I was like, that's why you're listening to me. Right. Right. Like, right, right. Exactly. And so, um, and it's, and, and again, it's all meant to be constructive, but I think that's the problem of, for business owners is that there's no one in their life, um, when it comes to this, that's either in a position or has an aligned interest to tell what's true. Mm. And so I, I think that's, that's what we want to start doing as far as why you begin developing a relationship with an M&A advisor, because the typical business owner is going to have a variety of blind spots. Yeah. And, and, so, and, and so to build and protect business value, you know, that's, that, that's, that's the meaning of the relationship. Got it. What, what would you say are the requirements or what type of businesses do you like to work with or like to engage I mean, most, most of, of, of the, um, I think we have 18 active sell side engagements. Most, like our, the size of deals that we work with currently um, range anywhere from 20 to 300 million in annual revenue. And um, that's truckload, that's brokerage. Most of that's all what we do. We do a little passenger transportation as well. But that's the majority of what we do. Sometimes we do um, a little smaller. Sometimes we do a little bit larger. Um, but I think that, Back to kind of like uh, the, the broker term, there's a huge need for that pocket of business owners because it's too sophisticated for a broker. And sometimes it's not quite big enough for your premier global investment bank because there's, they just have minimum professional fees that won't allow them to get involved yeah. in that size deal. So, you know, we're kind of in a unique place um, to address both the you know, the, the financial goals of business owners, but also some of those human things when they talk about, hey, I don't want to do a deal with somebody who takes all the jobs out of our community. Like, that means something to me. <laughs> right. Like, you know, I, I got to show my face in this town. That's like, right. Like, like so, um, so, you know, we're in a unique position to come alongside them and, and, and kind of toggle between all of the, the things that people care about at this size company. Got it. You guys are an established uh, entity in the M&A space. What, what are your goals for the future? Do you guys plan on doing anything you know, different? Just keep on doing the same thing? What are you thinking about for the next five to 10 years? No, that's a good question. I mean, we, 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 um, so we have a 10-year target as a company, and we, we work off the, the EOS system. And um, you know, I, there's several things in terms of where we want to go. We, wanna, we have a vision. We want to do $10 billion in transaction value between now and uh, 2032. Okay. And then as part of that, we want to influence $250 million in charitable giving. Okay. And, and so I don't know why I think this industry, for whatever reason, attracts some of the most generous people I've ever seen. For sure. And so, um, and I think that's why we continue to do what we do because, you know, we'll have a client and they'll lay out their goals and yeah, they want to, you know, they want to bless their families and whatever, but you know, we'll have people that have um, you know, transform both local and global ministries. They've, they've built firehouses. They've, you know, retired all of their cousins, um, you know, home and college debt. They, you know, I, I think that the issue is, um, it gets pretty purpose driven for us when we know that we get to play a small part in that. Yeah. We're, we're able to in, unlock that liquidity. So, you know, knowing that over 10 year target, like, you know, we, we, we love to align with business owners that want to use this event to go impact others. That's a pretty inspiring thing to go collaborate on. Got it. How, how much does your faith play a part in your business? 
It's a huge deal. I mean, I think that, um, uh, I think part of this, it's, it's hard not to take this, um, personally. It's very, it can be very, um, emotional in this process. So it's, it's, <laughs> it's fun. We joke about like, Hey, um, We'll, we'll be we'll be doing a deal and we got like a mission critical call with a buyer or something like that and you know, we'll we'll huddle up and like hey man anybody ashamed of bringing in some holy spirit power in this thing because like this this really needs to go well like, right, right 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 so um you know so that's just uh i joke about it but I, but i do believe it i i think i'm humbled by this work um uh and and you know we try to bring every uh, element that we can to serve others at the highest level of excellence. And so, you know, bring a little faith, but that never hurt anybody uh, when, it, when it comes to that. And so, um, no, I love that. And just, just trying to do the right things. And um, again, thinking about the business in the lens of serving, I think that's where that faith comes in. Yeah, for sure, man, for sure. Well, I think that's a that's a great way to kind of start wrapping things up. Uh, I, I appreciate, you know, just your transparency and just educating us on, you know, what you do. Um, you know, really great work over the years. And, and you've been a friend of me, always very supportive of the platform. So I appreciate that as well. Before you go, we have to do two things. Number one, we have to let everybody know where they can connect with you personally, right? Where they can find you and learn more about the Tenny Group. And then lastly, we have to give our final thoughts. So that is something entrepreneurial, spiritual, whatever you want to leave our audience with to kind of take away from this interview. So let's start with where they can connect with you at. Uh, best place, we say this all the time. I mean, um you know, you, if you're thinking about buying or selling, you got to start with education. And the best place to start that's at our website, thetennygroup.com. Uh, I would also suggest just following us on LinkedIn because, you know, we're sharing a variety of different stories from past clients that have gone through this process. You hear directly from them. I think that's just between those two things. It's a great way to kind of stay uh, looped into what we're doing. Got it. Amazing. And then final thought. Um, you know, I, I, I think that... Um, my encouragement is just for those that are out here, if they want to, you know, think about building value, just just try not to think of acquisitions. Don't make it something bigger than what, what it really is. Mm. Um, I think that it just takes one. Once you do your first one, um, it can unlock just an, an incredible amount of possibilities to transform wealth for your family and your community. So take a step of faith, get out there, try it. And if you don't respect that, your whole perspective is whack. Hustle fam, you know what we do around this time. If you smell something burning, it's only a desire. This has been another amazing conversation. Myself, my friend, Spencer Tenney, I'm glad we were able to finally do this. Hustle fam, we are out. If you twisted, confused, or stuck about trucks, don't be dumb. This is the place to come. Truck and hustle. Let's go.